Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that rings the bell of history every day of the week. I'm Gabe Lussier, and in this episode, we're looking at the -the behind-the-scenes story of one of the most beloved Christmas movies of all time. The day was December 20th, 1946. Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life premiered at the Globe Theater in New York City. The movie opened to mixed reviews and lost money at the box office, but it did garner five Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. It's also been reappraised in the decades since its release and is now considered one of the best motion pictures ever made, not to mention essential holiday viewing for millions of families worldwide. The movie's plot is a little dark for holiday fare. It centers on George Bailey, a down-on-his-luck family man who spent a lifetime sacrificing his dreams for the sake of his small-town neighbors. Faced with financial ruin, George tries to jump off a bridge on Christmas Eve, only to be rescued by his guardian angel, Clarence, who's trying to earn his wings. Clarence proceeds to show George what life would have been like had he never been born, revealing the positive impact his life has had on just about everyone in town. With a renewed sense of optimism, George races home to his family and finds that the townspeople have come to pay him back, thus saving his business and proving that it is indeed a wonderful life. The heartfelt tale is actually an adaptation of a short story called The Greatest Gift 
by Philip Van Dorn Stern. Stern, a Civil War historian by trade, is believed to have come up with the idea while shaving and was convinced it had all the makings of a Christmas classic. Unfortunately, no publisher agreed with him, and after several years of rejections, he decided to give the story as a gift to his friends and relatives. Stern printed up 200 copies of the story and sent them out as a 21-page Christmas card. As luck would have it, though, one of those copies fell into the hands of David Hempstead, a producer at RKO Pictures in Hollywood. He fell in love with the story and wound up purchasing the movie rights for $10,000. The original plan was to have Cary Grant play the lead role, but after several years of languishing in development, the studio lost faith in the project and ultimately sold the rights to Frank Capra in 1945. That year marked a major turning point in Capra's career. In the 1930s, the director had made a name for himself with feel-good films like It Happened One Night and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Then World War II broke out, and he spent the next few years making propaganda films for the Allied effort. Capra returned to Hollywood a decorated officer and was eager to get back behind the camera, but he found the studios were hesitant to rehire him. The country was feeling pensive after the war, and producers didn't think audiences were in the mood for Capra's style of filmmaking. The heroes of his stories were usually underdogs, ordinary people who faced off against powerful opponents and triumphed through the strength of their character. Even before the war, some people had written off Capra's films as sentimental fluff, or as they called it, Capricorn. And in post-war America, his optimistic view of human nature felt more old-fashioned than ever. The studio's skepticism pushed Capra to take matters into his own hands. He got in touch with fellow wartime directors William Wyler and George Stevens, and together they formed their own independent production company, Liberty Films. Not long after, Capra made his deal with RKO for the rights to The Greatest Gift believing it would be the perfect project to launch the new company. He worked with numerous writers on multiple versions of the story, eventually changing the title to It's a Wonderful Life. The script continued to be revised even during filming, and the final credit was given to Capra himself, as well as to Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett, and Joe Swirling. By that point, Cary Grant had long since departed the project, so Capra turned to his former collaborator and go-to everyman, Jimmy Stewart, for the lead role. It was Stewart's first movie after returning from active duty during the war, but you'd never guess he was out of practice from his turn as George Bailey. The rest of the cast proved just as capable, including Donna Reed as George's stalwart wife, Mary, Henry Travers as the angel-in-training, Clarence Oddbody, and Lionel Barrymore as the film's villain, the miserly Mr. Potter. With the cast and script in place, filming began on April 15, 1946, at the RKO Pathé Studio in Los Angeles. The initial budget was about $1.5 million, but the movie's elaborate sets, numerous rewrites, and extended three-month shooting schedule brought the final cost to nearly $4 million, the most expensive film that Capra ever made. A large chunk of that cost went to building the set for Bedford Falls, the small New York town where the story takes place. It covered four acres of the RKO lot and included 75 buildings, 20 fully grown oak trees, and a 300-yard-long main street. 
However, Capra didn't stop at building one of the most detailed movie sets of the era. He wanted to cover it in snow, too. That was a tall order, considering they were shooting the film during a heat wave in California. And while most directors would have settled for the usual stand-in, cornflakes painted white, he didn't want to deal with the crunching sound they made when actors stepped on them. Luckily, special effects supervisor Russell Shearman was able to come up with a workaround. He combined fomite, a substance used in fire extinguishers, with sugar and water, and the result was a new kind of artificial snow, softer, quieter, and more realistic-looking. Shearman produced 6,000 gallons of the stuff and then used a wind machine to spread it all over the set. The effect looked amazing, and Shearman won an Oscar for his efforts, but it didn't do the budget any favors. Capra had staked his career and the future of Liberty Films on the public's appetite for uplifting stories after the war. But when It's a Wonderful Life hit theaters in late December, audiences and critics weren't interested in what they saw as hokey nostalgia. The New York Times, for instance, described the film as a quaint and engaging modern parable, but went on to say that, quote, The weakness of this picture is the sentimentality of it. It's illusory concept of life. Mr. Capra's nice people are charming. His town is a quite beguiling place. But somehow, they all resemble theatrical attitudes rather than average realities. The general public seemed to agree, as the film didn't even make back its budget at the box office. In the end, Liberty Films took a half-million-dollar loss on the picture, and the company folded not long after. The film even had detractors in the federal government. It was investigated by Senator McCarthy's House of Un-American Activities Committee for allegedly being pro-communist, and in 1947, the FBI issued a memo calling out the movie for its, quote, rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. This, according to these sources, is a common trick used by communists. With all those setbacks, you're probably wondering how the film wound up becoming the quintessential Christmas viewing that it is today. And strangely enough, it's mostly due to a clerical error. In 1974, the film's copyright holder forgot to file for a renewal, allowing it to pass into the public domain. That meant any TV station could air It's a Wonderful Life as many times as they wanted for free. Plenty of networks did exactly that every holiday season, introducing the film to new generations that were much more receptive to its folksy nostalgia and sentimentality. Frank Capra, Jimmy Stewart, and Donna Reed all went on the record at different points saying that It's a Wonderful Life was their personal favorite of all the films they made. Thankfully, all three of them lived long enough to see their prized work find its audience. Capra was especially pleased with the film's revival, telling the Wall Street Journal, quote, It's the damnedest thing I've ever seen. The film has a life of its own now, and I can look at it like I had nothing to do with it. I'm like a parent whose kid grows up to be president. I'm proud, but it's the kid who did the work. I didn't even think of it as a Christmas story when I first ran across it. I just liked the idea. The rights to the film eventually landed back under studio control in 1993, meaning that from then on, TV networks would have to pay to air it. By that point, though, it was worth the money to license. 
It's a Wonderful Life had finally become the Christmas classic that its author always knew it could be. I'm Gabe Lusier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can pass them along anytime by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.